everyone, and welcome back to the Research VR podcast. I'm your host, Osbal Labanyan, and with me today is special guest, Tipitat Chenavasan, the general partner of the Venture Reality Fund. Hi, Tip. Hello, thank you for having me, Os. Yeah, thank you for being here. And of course, beaming in from Germany, we have Mr. Peter Lekoff. Hello, yes, beaming from 35 degrees Celsius since two weeks, warm Germany. Hello, hello, hello. Guten Tag. Yeah, I don't know what summer is like in San Francisco, especially mm. since I'm sitting under a layer of fog every single day, yeah. which I'm not complaining about. <laughs> um, well, hi, Tip. I'm really glad you are here. You are, I think, our first investor that we have had on the podcast um, in this kind of new series that we're we're starting to put together. I mean, it's not a new podcast, but it's a, a new series of inter- interviews and, and conversations that we're trying to have about kind of the business and, and, and the investment side of virtual reality. And I think if there's someone that knows as much about what is going on in the VR space now and also for the past like five years, it's probably been you. Um, <laughs> so we're here to talk to you about how things are going. Uh, yeah, let's actually let's start a little bit with your background, like how you ended up here. I think we know the story of you building a VR and VR game at first and then diving into the investment side more. But I guess before that, what were you what were you really into? Sure. Uh, yeah, I've always been in interactive entertainment, working at interactive media technology companies. Like uh, I spent most of my career actually at a company called Reactrix and they were doing, I guess you call it interactive projection now. Uh, this was back in like 2002. Uh, and you take a projector, project it onto the floor, and then you can interact in real time, like mm. kicking around the objects like a soccer ball on the field or whatever. Uh, and so I spent a good amount of my time doing oh, interesting. that. And so, yeah, that, that was kind of like a version of VR, AR, uh, and gesture input, and, you know, it was a computer vision project. Uh, and it really did give me that, like, excitement of, hey, technology is magic, and let's try to understand the nuances and what makes this particular new format of the technology compelling. And so I spent a good chunk of my career there. We spent a lot of VC money, could never find a business model that made sense and eventually crashed and burned mm-hmm. spending. I think we spent over $100 million of VC money. It's pretty sad. Um, wow. But yeah, like I say, a lot of learnings. And now I see a lot of startups doing those kinds of things. And it's kind of cool because, you, know, uh, <laughs> you know, it wasn't the right time then. Hopefully it could be the right time there now because it's still a pretty cool idea. Uh, and then, you know, went into social mobile gaming for a while. Uh, you know, did various roles, was anything from, you know, uh, art lead, uh, you know, leading teams to uh, technical, uh, PM, prototyper, eventually started my own mobile game company. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, I saw the, the Kickstarter for Oculus and John Carmack, whenever John Carmack backs anything or says something's, you know, worth paying attention to, yes. I would definitely pay attention. And so, uh, yeah, I popped down for the Kickstarter. I got that. And, you know, put on the DK1. And even though it was rough, it had its issues. It it made me a believer that consumer VR was going to finally happen and that it was going to be very, very interesting. And then when I got the DK2 and it had positional tracking, I was like, oh, my God, no, no, no. VR is going to be the most amazing thing I've ever seen. And Mm. as a creator, I was like, okay, even if it doesn't take off as an industry, as a creator... This is something I want to build for no matter what. Even if I was the only one that had a VR headset, this I no longer want to make anything else but stuff in VR. And so then I was prototyping, making crude experiments. Uh, you know, they were like pretty much like week-long little projects that were just testing different ideas or 
things that I liked about VR uh, or that I found interesting. Uh, and then one of those projects, uh, I tried to recreate the intro to the movie The Matrix. And I wanted to Ooh. experiment with what a presentation could be like in VR, but also what a movie could feel like in VR. And at that time, most of the like movie-themed VR uh, projects, and this is you know, this was right around like DK one, DK two, and so most of them were either those like you know immersive two D theaters where you're sitting in in a theater and, and it's just you know a screen, or you know it was like oh hey visit the set of Seinfeld or something, and I was like uh yeah I, I really want it to be more than that. I wanted to be a movie like how we dream about it when we go to sleep. We don't dream about watching people do it. We dream about being the people doing it. Mm -hmm. And so I thought instead of watching Neo, you can be Neo uh, and then you meet Morpheus and it explains to you that the world's a computer simulation while you're inside a computer simulation. And so it was pretty crude, but then it caught the eye of another Matrix, diehard Matrix fan, Eric Bale, uh, and then another one, John Dadley. And they were like, hey, let's do something cooler, better, more mm -hmm. and we're like, okay well what can we do and yeah we talked about it. we created like a, a more immersive version of it where you get to act out three different scenes from the movie so we kept the intro movie where you meet morpheus and then we also added uh, you know positional tracking where you have to dodge the bullets and then we mm -hmm. added the scene where the jump program after run and you jump across the building and then uh, the final scene in the hallway where you actually look you use gaze to stop the bullets and when the bullets all fall if you survive then the room turns into the matrix code so oh, funny amazing did you, did you guys ever release this so yeah yeah so we released this as a dk2 share and, and, and so what was funny about this was okay so now like you know i built it and we just built it to be fun it was nights and weekends it wasn't like a real project or anything but it was just you know i mean eric and john did amazing work on it but like you know it wasn't something we we're paid to do or we thought we would go commercial with this this was just like hey we're fans let's build something fun now, what was really interesting... Plus IP and everything. Yes, of is, course. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but for, for me, what was interesting was, uh, you know, in the process of building the jump program part, I accidentally cured myself of my real-life fear of heights. And so doing the jump yeah. multiple times, right, something happened. I wasn't trying to cure myself, but it just, you know, hacked mm -hmm. my brain and really unlocked, for me, the potentials of what VR and this new medium meant. And so it was, you know, the quote-unquote aha moment. Uh, but that, that showed me, too, where I was like, OK, you know what? I don't just want to be a content creator here. I, I think this is the most one of the most fundamentally amazing technologies I've ever seen in my life. And I want to do something bigger with it. It's quite astonishing that your story is way different than most of the people who are somehow ended up with VR, because usually it's, hey, I put it on the headset and there was the aha moment. Or, yeah, I was able to shoot around and that was the aha moment. But for you, because I guess your background already prepared you for what VR might be, it was rather what actually did to yourself the experience and not so much the experience itself. Fascinating. And then, I mean, it just, I think about it as a creator. And so I was just like, okay, this is cool. Okay. And, and I did have that, like, oh my gosh, this is going to change gaming and all this kind of stuff. But then when I hacked my brain, I was like, oh, no, no, this is changing more. Than That's gaming. next level. Yeah, stuff, yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to I want to ask you about this fear of heights okay. cure thing because yeah. I have to say I'm kind of kind of skeptical. Okay, <laughs> not not to say that VR doesn't have let's say uh, learning abilities or which I I think it or teaching abilities which I think it totally does and especially exposure training like a lot of that is super valuable. But um, I don't know if there are any humans that don't have any fear of height, right? Mm -hmm. Isn't that like an evolutionary um, trait that we've grown? So how do you define a uh, fear of height? Because I myself would describe myself as someone who is fearful of height, but then being on a ladder doesn't necessarily, or on a ladder, 
doesn't make me like you know sweat and have a real panic attack mm -hmm. but standing on a huge building does and i guess fear of height would be something where you are in a reasonably safe uh, you know height position but you are really feeling uncom uncomfortable right and you have a panic moment so for me yeah i guess what what did you f yeah my change? fear of heights was actually like i was never diagnosed or whatever but you know it was definitely an uncomfortable feeling like i wouldn't like even on an escalator going up like, you know, two, three floors, I would start to feel awkward. I wouldn't want to look down. Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. you know, if, Interesting. if I was in a glass elevator, I wouldn't look outward. I would face inward. And, and it wasn't like crippling, okay. debilitating. Yeah, you know, I wouldn't go into panic, panic attacks, but I would definitely feel like uncomfortable and, and just like, yeah. And I, I, I think what here, another, like sometimes when I would drive on the freeway, I wouldn't like, or, or if I'm driving on a near a cliff, I wouldn't want to be in the outermost lane. Like it, it was like something that was always Got conscious. It. Like, you know, there, there are definitely bridges I wouldn't cross, balconies I wouldn't look over. Sure. And, and, and I wouldn't say remove all fear of heights. Like I'm still conscious of it, but now I'm comfortable with it. So now, you know, things that right. I couldn't have done before, I can now do and actually enjoy. So like to test this, you know, did it really fix my fear of heights? I actually went zip lining for the first time. And you know, you're going over these huge mm -hmm. drops, and you know before I, I you know climbing even like to the third story of a of a building and looking over the balcony would be something I would so feel uncomfortable doing. It would feel like mental torture. And now I can do those kinds of things like no problem. Yeah. So there was considerable amount of anxiety in your day if there was any any height involved, and I, I guess you saw that becoming less of an issue. Yes by doing and, and hype things in VR. That's cool. For me, what was interesting about like a couple of things, one, you know, it wasn't about the visual fidelity. I mean, we did create a pretty slick looking, you know, like uh, Eric is a, a professional triple games environmental artist. So it did look good, but I did most of the training when it was still like temp graphics. So I, I don't think it was visual fidelity that necessarily cured me. Um, I think it was really that sense of six degrees of freedom and believability. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but, but also too, I, I wasn't, intentionally trying to do it i was just trying to create something fun and what i thought was like you know if yeah it was three people experimenting nights and weekends can do something so life-changing i thought like imagine what you know millions of developers can do for billions of people like it there will be so many things that you know we haven't thought of yet that you know I, i'd seen some research you know about vr and exposure therapy but i didn't realize how easy it could be to do yeah, yeah, that's that's the magic of it. That's that's really what drives me actually so mad that there is so much research on how to actually help people with that medium. And the research is really not even with good headsets, not even with good fidelity. It's it's really plain, simple and basic. Still, it's so powerful. And it's not in every yeah. mental hospital uh, or, or not in any, any hospital per se, even for pain uh, management. You know, it's still a big question to me. But I guess you can answer it from the market perspective, right? Sure. Later on. I'd I'd say probably the the part that really made a big difference is rather than the the amount of pixels that you were looking at, but is actually the the parallax that you get from moving your head mm. is a very strong depth cue that your brain uses to understand uh, distances between objects rather than just stereo. And I think having that motion through a large you know gap between buildings really can help you understand like depth and just be more exposed to having long depth in front of you. Yeah. However, I would add maybe um, also the idea that it worked so well because the headset itself still didn't have a good enough display. So I am right now waving uh, with a piece of paper on my Oculus Go so it doesn't overheat. 
and I don't have this uh, six <laughs> degrees of freedom. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. <laughs> nice. I'm actually literally waving. You're, you're waving. Right <laughs> yes, <laughs> but uh, it's a side note. But I have don't have six degrees of freedom, and still I perceive like you being there in the room in depth because the screen itself is decently enough. So. <laughs> David had his messing yeah. computer now. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, so, so much 3D. Um, the funny Wait. part is actually, uh, just a side note, I tested today the Vive Pro's pass-through mm. and compared it to the old Vive and they actually used the two cameras and when you activate pass-through, it's actually stereo. And when you look yeah. at objects in front of you, stuff behind you gets blurry and it's amazing actually. I didn't realize that. That's cool. Oh really? They have... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are they doing that with software or...? No, they have two cameras in the Vive Pro. So you, when you look at things that are close, you're seeing the things in the be, behind it. Get I mean, the things in, in behind you, basically, you see double, right? Mm -hmm. Because the parallax effect, mm -hmm. because you see them double, they get more, more blurry, kind of, for your brain. So the same is here. When I look at the controller right now, you are super blurry to me because I see you double. So it's kind of That's a trick. True. Yes. So you built so, your application. You've, you cured yourself of fear. What happens then? Uh, so you started base jumping. <laughs> so then, actually, what was funny was, you know, as any indie developer at the time, I would just take out my demo and I would just show it to everyone and just be like, hey, look at this cool thing I created with some friends, come check it out. I went to all the meetups. Uh, I remember Oculus Connect, the very first one. I was sitting in the hallways, like I didn't have connections to Oculus and stuff. I was sitting in the hallways trying to get people to try my little demo I created. Hmm. And, you know, and at the same time, you know, I was still doing other work. I, I picked up, I was doing some contract work at Samsung, working on AR VR projects as a developer. Uh, and then, you know, all the meantime, I was just talking to potential investors to say, hey, are you thinking about VR? Would you like to have some, you know, internal expert, like, you know, resources that are focused, like an associate that's just focused on the sector? And, you know, almost everyone said no to me, except for one small micro fund. And they were interested in doing a VR incubator accelerator program. And so they didn't have anyone that was either a tech entrepreneur or had VR AR expertise. I joined as their creative director helped set up the first VR incubator program called River. And that was when I kind of started my journey and transition onto the investment side of it. Right. I was going to ask, I mean, that's a very hard leap to make, right? From a developer role when you're just in the nitty gritty aspect of technology versus being so high, high level where you have to be thinking about ecosystems and, and is, does this idea actually make sense? How, how does someone make a transition like that? I mean, definitely having the startup experience of being my own uh, startup, uh, doing my own startup. And I, I, I guess I did gloss over that part where, you know, I did buy, you know, I was the CEO of my own mobile game startup. When I got the DK1, I was like, hey, no, no, VR is going to be my future. So I ended up selling my uh, startup to focus just on VR and AR. And okay, so, so having that You have some experience with. So being on, at least on the entrepreneurial side, but thinking about you know, business plans, thinking about, you know, pitching doing a, a gazillion pitches and you know, getting some small capital, um, exiting a company, uh, and even though it was an aqua hire, you know, just understanding a lot of that process just helped me understand at least one part of the equation. I you know, didn't necessarily mm -hmm. mean I was going to be a great VC, but at least I had one perspective of that, of the mechanism of venture capital and startup entrepreneurship. And so from there, you know, I had some network, I had some connections, but I also kind of could talk the talk. And what I realized my unique gift or my uh, special ability was to translate very well some of these like technical, creative, uh, or other challenges 
and translate it to the financiers, the venture capitals, the, you know, the people that were going to hopefully invest in this. And, you know, this was very early on. So people had a hard time understanding the difference between, you know, 360 video and, you know, in-game engine graphics, right? And so just understanding that concept, you know, oh, okay, that, I'm not, I don't want to disrespect other VCs and say no one got it, but the average person, because again, they're looking at so many different sectors, they have to for so many different mm-hmm. things, you know, it wasn't necessarily something that they immediately could grasp all the time, especially if it's just through like a five minute pitch. And because I had yes. experience building both sides of that, I could be like, oh, okay, no, this is it. That's it. You know, explain the difference too, between like why six degrees of freedom was important or, you know, the difference between, uh, 360 video and volume uh, volumetric capture, things like that, right? Or photogrammetry. Yeah. And oh, why does that differ? How does that work? Yeah, that gives uh, you a huge leg up. It's a huge leg up to understand the, the technical dis- distinctions between these things, and then also like translating that to your partners or to the people that you're you're going to be working with. And, and, I, and also at the same time, that, too, talking to startups and being like, hey, no, no okay, like you've built all this tech, mm-hmm. or you know, you're working on all these different ideas. What's the most valuable? Why? And, and kind of trying to surface that and being like, okay, this is where you should focus on, or this could be the differentiator or more fundamentally too. Like, you know, sometimes too, it's like, okay, this is what you're building. This is the tech stack you're pursuing. This is why it could be problematic and why this might not be the right approach and trying to understand mm-hmm. that. Um, that was very fundamental into like how I could transition. So being that, that mm-hmm. having that expertise that other people didn't, uh, like and I wasn't, I wasn't a super expert, but I knew enough of both worlds that each side of the world thought, "Oh wow, this guy knows yes. what he's talking about." Yeah, I think um, there's um, a very important point to that. So when we speak about investment in general, I have often impression that maybe outside of US, because in US, uh, in general, the amount of investors and amount of startups is so large that when you want to figure out how it works, it's very easy, but like in Germany, in Europe, and I guess also around the globe, there is not a big, uh, broad understanding of what investor role is actually doing. So I think this will be my question based on, but what I've kind of figured out is usually people see investors as just a bank, it's money. They don't see that they can explain the market. They don't see an investor to support you to opening your doors. And on the other hand, I think people who at some point read about, okay, an investor understands markets, investors can open me a door, they are always thinking, oh my gosh, yeah, he will take all my company, he will take all my product. So could you maybe quickly, because you're so much involved yourself in this industry, kind of give a brief overview of what an investor does and how it's not evil, but rather good? Because I think a lot of people have pre-con- like prejudgment in that area. Sure, sure, of course. And of course, you know, there are different types of investors, different kinds of investors, and there are some terrible investors out there. And, you know, venture capital has had a reputation of being vulture capital. And uh, it's, I don't want to say, you know, like there's always going to be strings attached, but like why you take investment or what you're doing, uh, you know, can vary at different stages. So common misconception, and this happens not just in in like Europe, but even in the U.S. Like, uh, you know, I meet a lot of people and it's like, they come to a VC when there's clearly at the angel stage or, or some, or they come to the wrong stage VC. And so basically, you know, just to break it down, typically the journey for an entrepreneur is this, if you have an idea, the first money in should be friends and family or your own money to like, you know, build out the rough prototype, figure out exactly what you're doing, why you're doing it, what's your advantage. 
and get that core team together. And then you'll take proof of concept at least. And yeah, right. Yeah. Like this is like the idea phase, right? So you, you have an idea, you need a little bit of money. Let's just say like a hundred K, a couple hundred K to just start building out a rough prototype and assemble the team, right? And then once you have a rough prototype, then you take it to the angels. And then the angel investors will say, okay, let's take this to market. Let's start to, or, you know, get the prototype and get real feedback on the prototype, right? See, mm-hmm how people interact with it, do people like it, do people not, will people pay for it? Uh, and then once you have that kind of going and you think, okay, now this is a real business, we just need to take it to scale. We need to, this is the, the hackneyed expression is like pour gasoline on the fire and make it bigger and really grow right. and expand. And that's when you get the VCs involved, say, okay, look, you know, we built the prototype, we've tested it, we've done some beta, uh, you know, pilot tests with some customers. They really like it. Now we want to do full deployments or we want to deploy and take over the market and become the leader in the space. And that's when you come to the, the VCs. And that's typically the process. And of course, you know, a lot of blurry lines, you know, there's super angels, there's VCs that do pre-seed, mm-hmm. you know, like, so it, it all gets kind of, kind of blurred. Uh, and that, you know, makes it a little confusing. Right. Even even on the earliest stage, right, the the hundred to two hundred k that you said, isn't that itself a pretty high number even to begin with? And you could accomplish a lot less without you know with half of that money, or perhaps even you know yeah, yeah. late nights Absolutely. and afternoons. Absolutely. So I mean, a, a lot of people don't even do a hundred k around, you know, or, or that's why too. Sometimes it's just you know the investors or the entrepreneurs themselves investing their time and their resources, right? Um, so it doesn't necessarily right. like not everyone does the friends and family round, you know, so, or some people can, if they were successful in the past, they fund their company up to a couple million. And, you know, magically, they probably got a ton of you know internal investment from Ronnie before they had even gotten their first brand. And so their first check was huge, but it wasn't necessarily a reflection of, oh, that was the first money really invested into the company. Uh, right. But but I. But it's not the the only route to build something and actually have a successful business is not just through VCs, right? I think that's something Absolutely that right. is often often not thought about, and we don't because we don't hear about those companies. Yep. They don't make as much money, or they're not in the news as much. Can you maybe yep. talk a little bit about that? Sure, sure. And so this is the thing too, where like, and this is why I tell a lot of time a lot of entrepreneurs I meet, where it's like, okay, your idea can be a good fine business, but it's not a VC backable business because VCs are in the you know, are in the business of taking a little money and trying to make it a lot of money. And so we're always looking for it. And this is why everyone's like, oh, we're looking for unicorns. What's a unicorn mean? Well, we want a hundred times return our investment. So we have to think that your company can be worth a billion dollars or in the hundreds of millions of dollars. But there are a lot of great companies that are, you know, that just make millions or tens of millions. And, you know, depending on the team size, that can still be very profitable, very successful. And so you don't really think about those as being VC backable, but they're still fantastic businesses. Uh, right. How would you um, uh, distinguish um, or how would you help, or what would be the criteria that someone would have to go through in their minds before deciding this, whether they are backable or not? So, I mean, I think a couple of things, you know, one is the opportunity big enough, you know, is the product that you're building just for a very specific niche uh, or is it something that's you know has a huge huge potential opportunity? And and you have to be realistic about this because I, I you know I'll meet companies and they'll be like oh yeah you know we're we're building something in in the advertising space and you know everyone adver- and it's just like no 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 what you're doing is a very specific type of advertising and it only applies in this and 
maybe your technology will one day like be applicable to a, another sector, but even then it's still another like niche category, right? So you have to be really honest about what you're doing, uh, where the value is in what you're doing and how wide that audience or market opportunity really is. Uh, and then, you know, being honest too about, well, I think a lot of times where you're at and what you're doing, this is the thing I see a lot of times. There are a lot of companies right now that are VR or AR production studios. So, you know, yeah. they do client service projects. Uh, you know, Nike will be like, hey, I, I want to build a VR app for, you know, this activation or for, you know, this marketing campaign. And so that, you know, they build a cool VR, AR experience. And then they're like, okay, well, VCs don't, Invest in content in these kind of service production studios because it's not recurring revenue, market to not to be big enough, um, and so then they'll be like, okay, well, let's try to pivot and let's say, okay, we now are creating a tool or some kind of platform or or something that's going to be more generic, that's going to be more e not less bespoke, less custom manpower or woman power, but actually more just uh, you know something that's a self serve software tool that other creative agencies could potentially use or something like that right it's always a platform like, right like we want to be the platform with yeah, yeah. reality. and this is pretty common or, or, or it'll be like okay you know we've been working with like five or six customers we notice that they all have the same need so now we want to build a software tool that helps you know support that need okay that that that, that that's a very valid approach it sounds good and then they'll come to a, a vc and they'll come with this hey you know we've done three million in revenue and you know, we think our company is worth this amount of money because, and this is the product that we're trying to build. And the problem is, like you know, that three million in revenue was all client service work, not built off of your new you know tool and your new platform. You haven't really right. proven that out. So they're thinking that they're worth a lot more than as a VC. I'd say no, no. I mean, it's good that you have some kind of validation by building these prototypes with these customers. But if you haven't signed those customers onto your new software tool that you've created. Then you really are, you know, still in the very early stage of this idea. What's with training? So let's say you did um, six uh, training applications, and a customer paid money for each of them. Yep. But then you decide, okay, I want to do a two out of it. So it's more about building tools, right? Yep. Not those customer projects. Yep. And, and so this is very common, right? Like this idea, okay, like let's say we've built these, uh, you know, heavy machinery operating. You know, simulation where you're learning to operate a crane and you're learning to operate a bulldozer or whatever. Okay. And then realize, okay, no, no, we don't want to be the ones building each one of these. We're going to build like a light version of Unity that's specifically for building these. So it's very easy for, for you know, uh, Caterpillar or some other company to build their own additional content so that the developers aren't, or so the, you know, the startup isn't building it, but they're enabling others to build it. And then they're getting all the analytics and blah, 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 blah. Okay. So then it's like, okay. First, are those customers, you know, how much are they going to pay for this tool? Uh, how much, how often are they using this tool? How many people go through this tool a year and how much is it worth to those companies that are doing it? And then are there enough companies out there to make that a huge business, business opportunity? And I feel like a lot of times people be like, well, okay, look, we've built the bespoke versions and now we're working on the tool and now we want, you know, a lot of venture money to kind of build out this you know, huge platform thing. And I'm like, well, no, you're still, even though you have some good validation, some good proof points, I would say, yeah, still raise less money. You're still in the earlier stage of this process. You know, once you've built the tool, sign up some of these big customers to start beta testing the tool. Now, once those customers realize, okay, this tool is essential to them, and then they need to go big with it, or that they're going to sign up for a yearly license and they're going to get you know 
they're, and they're going to put thousands of people through this, okay, that's when you should really raise the big money. But until then, hmm. things smaller, smaller, smaller. And this is the one thing, like, too, like, uh, I feel like sometimes because of, you know, a lot of times people get ahead of themselves and they don't think, okay, they just want to start big, but then right. they don't have room in case things happen. And if they slide down, that's a terrible, you, you want your, your growth path to be continually growing up. And so you want to raise right. a smaller round at a smaller valuation, you know, a next round at a, at a, you know, a good valuation and then go for the bigger valuation there. Some people, you think, never... oh, I can get this big valuation early, but then they get a hard time because their valuation is too high then their next rounds are harder, much harder to do. So, uh, yeah, it's funny because uh, Silicon Valley, the TV show, the very first episode talks about this. And, and, and it's not just about the horrors of the down round. I mean, it's just the struggle of saying, okay, if my company, if I start out, typically you'll say in a year, you'd like to double the value of your company, right? So if I start out and say my company is worth $3 million, then a year later I have to prove it's worth $6 million, right? Ideally. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, Right. Sounds reasonable. If you start at five million and say, "Oh, I have to prove my company's worth ten million in a year," that tends to be a lot harder to do. With some, with a lot of the investments that happen in virtual reality, especially in I think twenty sixteen and maybe early twenty seventeen, um, there are some huge investments that came on. Whether it was to Adi, to John, to you know, obviously Magic Leap to a certain extent, um, there were a lot of companies that had like over 50 million dollar rounds and i think a lot of those companies today are are either running out of money downsizing laying off or they're having like a down round mm-hmm. where do you think that disconnect was in terms of predictions of how successful they were going to be in the first 2 years is that like an error of prediction on maybe you think the the investors that know how these markets scale and how long that that takes for it to grow um where do you think that error was made in terms of like the the the, the pace of things? Sure, I mean, I think there definitely is a lot of okay, consumer adoption of VR. You know, is that looking like what people were hoping it would be? Uh, you know, honestly, I feel like the media overhyped it a lot, and they were making these crazy predictions. And analysts were like overhyping VR to extent where you know you talk to any seasoned investor or seasoned analyst, they'd look at it and be like, okay, look, those numbers don't make sense because. You know, Samsung can't even build enough OLED panels to power those headsets, right? Like, <laughs> yes. Like when it just comes back to like the fundamentals, right? Um, but that being said, now thinking about like a couple of things, it's not just about the co- consumer adoption, uh, but it's also about some of the challenges these startups are trying to do. Because a lot of times when you're in these new technology fields, uh, you know, there's a lot of technology that has to be built out that doesn't exist yet. Uh, but it's also not the... about technology, it's also about people. I mean, it's very hard to hire anyone who has Unity experience. It's even harder to hire anyone who has Unreal experience. So, I mean, let's say there are enough panels to be built on. I mean, you still need to figure out people who build it, right? And that's hard to figure out instant out of nowhere. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't want to discount that at all. But even that fundamental issue, though, of like, okay, you're building, you know, like what 8i was trying to or is trying to do, right? Like volumetric capture in this thing. It's like, you know, no one's ever really done this before, and it requires a lot of math, a lot of algorithm. Yeah, you know, and there's so many different challenges, both on the creation, the optimization. Like, there's just like it, it's easy to do a tech demo. It's hard to do the actual productization, right? And so, even if VR and AR, you know, had a huge install base, there's still some technical challenges, regardless. 
that a lot of these startups, that's why they needed a lot of money because they needed to solve a lot of these challenges. And I don't want to speak about AI or anyone in particular, but I know, you know, there are a lot of companies too where uh, solving some of these technical problems were a lot more challenging than they originally budgeted for. Um, or mm. I mean, I, I, also I think what ended up happening too was, you know, there are companies that thought, okay, the market would be bigger than it is now. There'd be much more demand on the consumer side. And so they built out a large company to accommodate that, not kind of in anticipation. And then they had to contract once they realized, okay, the markets went there in time. But the bigger thing too was, was what was happening was there was a lot of excitement for VR, right? Like, you know, everyone trying the headset, most people when they try, you know, a good VR for the first time get blown away. So there's a lot of an initial enthusiasm. And then when things get overhyped, a lot of investors, you know, start looking at space. And then that actually drives, artificially drives um, prices up, demand, you know, it's, it really is supply and demand, right? And so, you know, there's these rounds that happen and people want to get in and there's, you know, the FOMO thing. And, you know, before you know it, companies have higher valuations than they really should have at that time. And then what happens is, you know, once VR and AR is no longer the hottest thing on the block and, you know, people are looking to blockchain again, you know, all of a sudden all the attention yes. is there. Now that becomes a hyperinflated you know, area and then VR and AR becomes a little deflated. One counterpoint, though, to all this is that regardless of the hype cycles, regardless of, you know, smart companies doing good things are still thriving this in, in the, even yep. this early stage of VR and AR. And, well, I just teleport crazy. So do you think that a lot of uh, this overhype um, happened because people who were in the power of making the decisions regarding investment didn't have someone like you who would be able to basically understand more reasonably what needs to be done that's more challenging? And the second question is, is the reason that a lot of those uh, investors that usually or used to be supporting of VR going to uh, blockchain, this kind of disappointment that drives them there? I think it's 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 a combination of things. I, I think lately too, it seems like we are getting very um, you know our attention spans are very short just in general, right? There's always just new stuff coming all the time. And when people think of mobile phones and mobile the smartphones in particular, they think, oh yeah, like smartphones. It was almost like an overnight success. You know, like the iPhone just came out and dominated, and all of a sudden, you know, it's this billion dollar app marketplace, right? And it's like. Uh -huh. But, but it's always like, if you actually look back and follow the trajectory and the story and the history, you know, it doesn't start with the iPhone, right? It starts with the, not the Nokia phone, not the flip phone, you know, even the Motorola brick phone. Like, no, before that, it was like these like car phones and suitcase phones. And, you know, and then if we think about that long-term trajectory, and there are a lot of smart investors that were like, yeah, this is the, you know, trajectory that we're on. But then I think a lot of people get all built into this. Oh, no, no. But technology is so fast. Consumer adoption is so fast. We look at, you know, like, and they just get caught up in their own so, hype. And, you know, I'd say this, like, even blockchain. And we look at what happened with crypto, right? Like, it was like, we already had, like, a small boom and bust for blockchain, right? And that was, you know, many years ago. But then because of crypto and all this stuff, it started coming back. And all, all the investors got really excited again for crypto. And what I'd say, this is all cyclical. And so right now, you know, VR and AR is in the down of the hype, but it'll come back up very soon, I think. And is it a good or a bad thing? That's, that's the harder thing to know and to say, okay, well, you know what? It's good in a way because a lot of investors are excited. They're funding a lot of projects. But at the same time, they're funding a lot of projects that might not be 
great projects and um that might not have the legs might have you know for many different reasons you know could not be the right that means it trains the people right it's it's not a question with about good or bad right isn't this exactly the same cycle that happens with almost every niche market that comes around with with 3d printing with drones with uh vr with crypto with even ai uh, to a certain extent Absolutely. absolutely um and may I even, <laughs> I think that was dead on arrival, honestly, or, yes. or maybe I'm just mis, misunderstanding it. Um, but if the iPhone arrived 10 years before it actually did, I don't think because the pipes weren't actually laid out, let's say both uh, like Wi-Fi wasn't a thing 10 years before 2007. Um, you know, both Facebook and YouTube didn't exist. So like there wasn't even any real content to consume on a phone with a screen that big. There wasn't screens that big. Like there's a lot of other things that needed to happen for this certain uh, moment to happen, right? So that you also are competing with other, uh, or you're working along with other industries to build the the infrastructure to get to a certain point of user experience for something to work. And, and the thing I, I go back to too, I think even comparing VR and AR to the phone cycle is wrong because hmm. I feel like the phone has an inherent purpose that we know like of inherent value and function and utility that provides in our life that makes it essential and that vr and ar as of yet has yet to figure that out and i think that vr and ar is much more like when desktop computers first arrived because you know desktop computers no one knew what they were good for they're just like okay what is this thing you know it's it's a computational device okay but when we think about what made desktop pcs really go mainstream it was office productivity, right? It was, you know, Word, Excel, PowerPoint. Yes. Right. And, and once it provided that kind of utilitary function, oh, I need this to do IT work, then every home needed to have one. You know, every parent would bring, you know, would work from home. And so they'd need to have a device and then the kids yeah. get on it. Uh, and so, you know, phones inherently have that, okay, I, I need a communication device. I need to connect with other people. I need to be connected with other people. And then, oh, having a smartphone is just a better, better version of the phone. At that price point, it makes sense. I would adopt it anyways, right? Like that wasn't as hard of a sell, but like for VR and AR, you know, we still have to find that what's the value that it, the utility it brings to our life. And I think one of the big things that we've done wrong, or I, I don't want to say we've done wrong, but one of the things that has led us to this point is that the over-reliance on entertainment, the feeling like, okay, mm -hmm. VR is the next gaming machine. Let's position it as that. And you know, let's oh, yeah. get the gamers on board first. Like, you know, even if, if it did its best, you know, you, you think about the console market, uh, you know, best consoles mm -hmm. today, like the PlayStation 4, best selling console does like, you know, it sold like 80 million units, right? So you're, you're talking about hundreds of units if you're a console device or, or, or like a gaming device. You know, if you really want to get to the billions, you know, then you have to think about, okay, PCs, that's like a 2 billion unit market. And then, of course, mobile, which is the biggest market, like, you know, 5 billion, right? And you just you have to think about that, like, what value does it play in your life and how many people need that, are, are, need that value, right? I think, just to compare to another niche market, drones, which I follow pretty closely, oh, yeah. the amount, and this is something that I've started to recently learn in terms of, like, I, I've always heard about, oh, enterprise, enterprise, and, you know, these things are built for enterprise. and But it really... I really have been seeing it happen a lot with drones and how much drones make a lot of things that were extremely expensive on the enterprise side cheaper and, and more replicable and, and automated. Um, 
so, so with VR, do you see a have you seen something like that happen with on the enterprise side rather than if we're, you know, we're all cons- concentrated on con- consumer because that's what phones really made a huge splash into. How do you how do you evaluate, you know, the enterprise side of VR in 2018? Yeah, uh, so I think the enterprise side is one of the most exciting parts of VR right now. And, you know, we're talking to companies that have half a million to millions in revenue from huge, you know, Fortune 500 companies. Uh, like we didn't invest in Striver, but Striver is doing a great job in terms of employee training. You know, they've trained, uh, I think last year they trained 100,000 Walmart employees in VR. Wow. And so, you know, I think they're doing a great job. There are others out there too. We recently made an investment in a company called Vantage Point. And what's very interesting about them, you know, they're actually using VR to teach soft skills, potentially, uh, specifically for sexual harassment training, cultural uh, sensitivity training. And these are things that, you know, of course, hot topic issue right now with Me Too and what happened with Starbucks. But what's more interesting is like the current tools don't work. Like watching those like cheesy corny videos are not compelling. But, you know, we've always known that VR is a, you know, the quote unquote empathy machine. And now using that empathy, you know, for something that has a very specific business need and dollar value amount Mm -hmm. attached to it. You're like, okay, that makes a lot of sense. And so, you know, what Vantage Point has done very well is to show, okay, not only is this cheaper, more economical or whatever, it's actually effective and gets the job done where, uh, you know, old technology or old methodology didn't. And, and th- those are the things that for us that are exciting and that we look for. Does it make sense to build headsets specifically for enterprise right now? Absolutely. So yeah, w- that was actually another one of our investments. Uh, it was a company called Vario. And what they realized was, you know, one of the challenges some of the enterprise customers have is saying, hey, you know what? We believe in VR. We've seen how it can be effective, but the current resolution, the cur- you know, they, they have issues with the current uh, you know, consumer headsets. And they're like, look, we're willing to pay a premium if you can meet our needs. And what Vario has been able to do is create a high resolution headset that, you know, is orders of magnitude, you know, higher visual fidelity than what we see in the current consumer, even with the Vive Pro. And it, it really is night and day. And for, you know, customers that, that need it, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And we've, we've talked about them in the past year, and, and I think we'll be having them on the podcast in the future as well. Um, Excellent. I mean, you but it's try it, right? It's, it's pretty amazing. Yes, yes, absolutely. The eye the resolution statement, I think, is correct, especially just in the fovea of your vision. Yep. You, If not the same as eye as uh, resolution in real world, but like even slightly better sometimes to read text that's like really far away. Um, I think there's certain things I need to work on with like the feathering between the displays. But anyway, I think, I guess this, this leads to is the trickle down effect uh, kind of what consumers can be expecting in the in the future is is for headsets to be built for enterprise you know that costs multiple thousands of dollars and and over over the next two to three years that technology because of the demand and because of the supply like will you know or the the what is it the uh, the economies of scale will just bring the the parts down cheaper and and become consumer consumer grade. I believe so. I mean, you know, you kind of think about this too, like even for cell phones, right? The first major adopters were enterprises, right? Like the professionals that needed it, like the doctors, the lawyers, you know, uh, sales professionals, right? That they needed all of that. And eventually they could get to a certain type of scale, but then, you know, once that brought down the price barrier, then more consumers adopted, then it could bring it to an even bigger uh, scale, scale down or scale up. So 
but, but I always do feel like there will always be a need for a super high end. You know, there'll, there'll be tiers, mm-hmm. right? Like even today, like you know, when you think about cars, right? There's yep. always going to be the race cars. You know, there's always going to be the consumer car, uh, like premium cars, and there's always going to be the econo cars. And so having that range of diversity is good. I mean, we started the discussion about a medical case, right? When we think about hospitals, I mean, the ability to sanitize your headset is a very unique and very special uh, uh, need. I mean, we had on our Discord channel someone who describes that he's washing his face every time before he puts on the headset. Mm-hmm. It made me actually wonder whether I should do something like that myself. Mm-hmm. And I mean, besides Vario, there is also the VR Genius, right? With the ridiculously looking, yeah. but super high resolution headset. I tried the new version recently and it's really good. And I mean, from what I know from the, you know, the B2B market where I, my day-to-day job is with those production tools, I mean, the customers look at the Vive, even the Vive Pro and say, yeah, well, the pixels, I mean, maybe they don't need even more pixels. I mean, I would argue they don't need them, but they're still somehow reluctant to not getting you know, the best pixels that they used on the screens. But I mean, there's one point that we discussed today that is like those productivity tools. And it really is a big, big, big pain point in my heart somewhat. Because while I'm working in a company that tries to build a tool for production planning, right, for the customers, it takes so much time to do the UX research. And I understand because it's a super specific need. But what I don't understand is why isn't there a calendar app? So it's as simple as a calendar app for the Oculus Go or anything that I could finally start to use all those headsets that I acquired to actually do something that I would do every day. Like even what we're doing right now on big screen, podcasting, right? But maybe also the reading text, browsing the internet, exploring pictures, looking at something, anything that is somewhat useful. I mean, the gaming is going amazing pace. Like I'm spending hours those days with Oculus Go playing those games, it's cool, but there's just nothing, nothing that somehow could substitute anything that I do with the desktop. And why is it that way? Have you seen any amazing startups or maybe invested in them? Or do you think it just will take more time? I mean, it is interesting because I definitely say like, you know, virtual desktop and big screen are some of the most downloaded and used uh, daily apps in VR, right? But then what's more interesting is like, you know, we had big burnouts like Envelop. They raised some good money from smart VCs. They're trying to do, you know, virtual desktops for professional use. And you know, they couldn't get it off the ground. And yeah, I, I didn't invest. I don't know the specifics of why they couldn't get it. But, you know, that that's one interesting kind of data point of looking at, okay, productivity in VR. To me, and I don't want to knock big screen or any of the people that are doing this, but doing trying to do productivity, at least current IT productivity in VR is a little bit like, uh, you know, or it, 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 it's like when they were first doing movies and they were like, okay, let's just put record stage plays and put it in, you know, and record that. And that's going to be what movies are. You know, it's, it's like, okay, yes. it's something we understand and it's putting it in there and you know, it might be a little bit better, but is it really transformatively better? And that's the thing that I, I kind of go back to where I feel like one of the fundamental challenges that I think, or the bigger opportunity, I think, is not saying, hey, like, there's all these IT workers, right? Uh, you know, we use computers every day. And I think the initial idea was to say, these should be the first adopters of VR because they're already used to technology. They already are comfortable with it. They already have a uh, you know, PC. So buying you know, a couple hundred dollar headset, that should be very easy for yeah. them to understand. But the problem is the value that you can give for them, right? Like... Even if I had a calendar app in VR, you know, a 2D representation of your calendar is already pretty good. And so is it going to be that much better if it was in VR? Mm-hmm. I really feel like there's a bigger opportunity out there. Like I, I'd say, like, and this is a gross stereotype, but let's just say, okay, 
IT workers, right? If we're used to computers, we're probably doing pretty well. We're pretty efficient at the way we do our job. Typing to, to input text is the most efficient way to input text. I don't think we're going to come up with a better solution in VR beyond typing. And so, although more, I don't know. I might, I might push back on that, but okay, okay. please, yes. But 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 the general idea is okay. We're, we're already. I'd say we're like eighty percent efficient. Well, VR and AR tools make these IT workers eighty-five percent efficient, ninety percent efficient. Maybe if we go hundred percent efficient, would be be driven insane, probably. <laughs> so I, I think what, what's the bigger opportunity is to say, can we take people that are zero, zero percent efficient? And even if we only make them fifty percent efficient, yes. that's a huge gain in productivity for that person. Yes. That's allowing them to do things that you know again is, is a fundamental life-changing opportunity for that person. And so, mm -hmm. what I would say is this: people that are participating in the digital economy right now, we're for the most part doing pretty well. People that are not part of the digital economy are having a tough time, right? If you're yeah. service manufacturing. The quote-unquote blue-collar jobs versus white-collar jobs, and I feel like because of the computer revolution, uh, you know, a skilled IT worker now, a lot of the skill is being able to stare at screens, look at text and numbers, you know, code and data and numbers, and then to be able to type and use a mouse, which is like indirect input. Uh, even for a digital artist, to be able to use a Wacom tablet and to you know, draw here, but see over here. Like that's the skill now. Or you know, if you're a 3D texture artist, the skill is, oh, I'm gonna draw on this Photoshop image, and I know it it will be here on this 3D model, right? Like that's the like part of the skill and the value, right? I think the opportunity with VR and AR is to say, no, let's reinvent the digital interface and make it more natural, so that way anyone can participate in the digital economy. And so, you know, going back to this idea, uh, let me just finish this thought real quick. Sorry, I tend to ramble on. But this is something I've been thinking about a lot for like the past six, eight months, right? Uh, this idea of saying, hey, can we reinvent the work, uh, the, the interface of work? And can we let people that are not strong abstract thinkers and not great at direct or indirect manipulation start succeeding in the digital economy? And I think of VR and AR fundamentally as taking abstract digital information making it visual and spatial that anyone and everyone can understand. And this is the very important part. With six degree of freedom controllers, we can now directly manipulate the digital world as naturally as we do the physical world. And so, you know, again, a very d dumb example that I like to give about this is someone that currently paints furniture, paints toys, paints houses, paints cars, right? Applies color to objects, right? That is a low-skill job, minimum paid, uh, you know, uh, minimum wage worker. Someone that's a digital artist, right, that paints a uh, virtual car, virtual house, virtual toys, virtual objects for video games or movies. That is a sixty to $90,000 job, right? Two to three X, the low-skill job. Now with VR, and you've seen this, Oz, the interface for doing that digital work feels just like the natural job. And is is easy. So I feel like with very minimum training now, we can take a quote unquote low skill worker, and because we've changed the interface, now their skills are they can do high skill work. I would like to add one 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 little point to it. So I agree with you one hundred percent. Except there is a misunderstanding of everyone out there 
because from what I have experienced, managers, people who work in a B2B market, they are agree with you to a point where we could project more information in the visual field of the blue color worker so they can you know, do IR maintenance. But when you actually, and what we've been trying to do, we speak always about, we can give the blue color workers the ability to do production planning because they don't need to use the complex cut tools. That's something that just doesn't stick. I mean, there is so much knowledge in the blue color worker's mind, as an example, right? Mm-hmm. Blue color worker, but there is just not an understanding on the management level, in my, at least in my experience, where they want to enable them. They want to give them an easier way, explain them easier things, but don't enable them. And what where you just write or heading is exactly that way, to give them an ability to participate in it. And I think it's an amazing thought. But sorry, ask, go on. Um, well, maybe, maybe they're not considering like the right incentive, like in terms of increasing productivity, decreasing um, the amount of people you have to hire for it, and just having more more wage per per person. Is that more accurate to be that? Sure. I mean, I, I think too. I think about it more as a bottoms up approach than a top down approach. I think we've been focused on the top down approach. How can we get companies to adopt VR? And it's like, no, no, no. Let's go back and let's just think. Like, having that individual to feel like there's something so valuable in VR that they will put up with all the friction that there currently is. And, yes, and you know, it's right. like, you know, price, comfort, all these things. It's like, well, at the end of the day, if I can say you're going to make $10,000 more a year using VR, who would say no even at this current form factor, right? Especially if you're only making $30,000 and that's a huge upgrade, you know, to your earning potential. Big corporates. Right? Big corporates are hesitant. But, but I think that's fine. Like, but, but what I would say too is, is like, the problem is like, we're, we've been focusing on big corporates, but we shouldn't be focusing on big corporates, right? I think, you know, the way the world works now is a very yes. different kind of place. And you think about something like Uber, right? Like Uber and, you know, Lyft, they've shown, oh, you know what a valuable skill is? Driving and owning a car, right? Like that's a skill now and you can make decent money. Well, kind of. You can supposedly make decent money off of it. But now there are people that are buying yep. cars so they can be Uber drivers, right? So it's like, you know, if you show them that the skill is valuable, that there's money to be made here, they will go to, you know, they will overcome crazy obstacles to do that, right? And now I feel like... I think the testament to that being true is that although the the hardware is as bulky and it cumbersome driver issues and stuff... People are putting up with it and are spending considerable amount of time using it for productivity things. And and I think virtual desktop and big screen are can probably show you certain things when it comes to that specifically. So maybe you're right in terms of the bottoms up approach where individual people within these companies are figuring out their workflow and, and improving their workflow and that proving out like becoming the proof of concept to build out a bigger idea on top of that. And I don't want to um, say it's one or the other. I think we need you know both approches happening at the sure. same time. But I think we've been focusing too much on the top approach and not really thinking, and mm-hmm. okay, we've been like, okay, how can VR be valuable to a company's bottom line? That, that is important. But I think also important is, okay, how can it be an enabler for the individual? And how can it say, hey, you know what? VR or AR, you know, these new ways of interacting with the digital world are, you know, really empowering me to do new, not not my job better, but new jobs I didn't think I could do before. Yes. And that becomes way more interesting to me. To, to wrap things up, um, I guess, how would, what would your response be to, I mean, at, over the past year and a half, we've seen time and time again, these articles that come out that are either talking about, you know, VR being dead or VR not living up to its hype. Do you think that's a fundamental misunderstanding of the potential or a fundamental 
miscalculation of the numbers and just not understanding how growth happens? Like, where where is the disconnect happening there? I mean, I think it's a lot of it's all of the above. Uh, yeah, and I think a lot too. There's there's a lot of people that are just you know wanting to get clicks, and so they try to be sensational, and you know they want to try to you know get sure. people you know excited. So the more crazy statement you can make, the better. And no one wants to see an article that says, "Hey, yours going slowly, but it's doing well." You know, like that's not an exciting article, <laughs> right? Uh, but no. But you know, I, I will say too though, like. I think we still could be doing better. I, th- I think, you know, as an industry, we could be thinking, you know, not saying my assumptions are right, but I think that we could take more of these ideas and start pushing them against the assumptions that we have and start going in different ways. And the thing that I, I want to see more startups thinking about is not trying to say, okay, I, I feel like a lot of people are kind of looking at the same kind of projects, going back and forth. And, you know, three years in, you know, people are still talking about, oh, can we do virtual desktops? Can we do these things? It's like, well, you know, maybe not with this current generation of hardware, or maybe not because you know other factors. But are there other more immediate pro- or different problems that we can tackle? You know, like thinking about field workers, or, or thinking about blue collar workers, or thinking about like you know other opportunities, and really exploring that. I, I feel like that's what we need to start doing now. Is you know, yes. this I feel like right now what we're in right is the R and D phase of the industry, and. I want to get the software right. So when the hardware becomes perfect, and you know, I think the Santa Cruz will be probably the first example of what we're looking for in terms of a mm. mobile, you know, six degrees of freedom, head and hands, you know, easy to use device, right? Once that hardware's there, but what's the software that's going to put you back in every day? Right. So once we don't have a lot of the hardware barriers, if we still don't have this, you know, that that software that's giving us that um, purpose every day then we're, we're still in the same problem. And so I, I want to find it, try to solve both. Or I feel like other people are talking on the hardware side. I think my job as a VC right now is to help try to solve the software content side. You know, for, for me, looking at some of the startups that are out there, they're doing great work and they're proving out, you know, they're, they're creating the user interface metaphors. They're finding those, you know, things that, you know, VR is being used for. And, and I love the ones that are, you know, proving a lot of the assumptions that we had false, right? Like I think going into this, even early on, we started getting data points and we started assuming different things. And you know, I think we should always challenge a lot of these assumptions and start looking for the exceptions to the rules and seeing what's driving daily activity in VR. And you know, it, it's it's a uh, you know on the gaming side, on the consumer side, but we've never seen a hit game like Beat Saber uh, in yes. VR. And, you know, I think a lot of people at first were kind of dismissive about Beat Saber, saying, oh, you know, it's just, it's just lightsabers. Everyone wants lightsabers. Oh, you know, music games. Music games are always doing good. But, you know, like, it's done way better than audio shows. It's done way better than any other. And not just in terms of sales. The thing that I find the most important is looking at concurrent users, right? And so that's the one data that we can still look at. Uh, and it's like steamdb.info. And you can kind of see this graph and see that, you know, Beat Saber has two to three times, you know, the population concurrent daily usage of any other VR app that we've ever seen before. And it's not even a multiplayer game. It's and not that's even a multiplayer, very yeah. So we have an episode with them. Yes. The, just to plug it. They're very good. I, I really we, we like the team, full disclosure, we are advisors to the team. We like them a lot. Uh, we've been trying to help them along. But regardless, like, I feel like those are the super positive signs where it's like it's doing so well even in this small ecosystem and even with all the friction that we have 
once we have the right device, I think that's going to get a huge ecosystem going and could be a huge yeah. you know, indicator of what's working in VR. And I think more developers should follow that lead of understanding, okay, why does it work? What's good about it? Yeah, just, just to be transparent, I mean, that's a, one of our main missions on this podcast is by inviting creators and, and people like that is to really try to a little bit unpack what's, you know, what's going on there. What, what about from the user experience and also development side, like is working and, and for other developers that are listening to be able to like get inspired from and replicate. I think there's, there's a tremendous amount of things you can learn from looking at the exceptions to the rule and try to understand what happened there. Um, so it might be a little bit harder today to be successful, but like moving forward, I think that those barriers will probably be, maybe actually they'll be harder, right? Actually. <laughs> but right now is probably the best time to be in VR because there's right. enough of an install base, not a huge install base, but there is enough of an install base where you can actually, you know, make decent money if you're a small enough team, but there's still no unfair barriers to entry, right? Like, what I love about mm -hmm. the V-Saber story is, you know, a three-person team from the Czech Republic that, you know, they didn't have the biggest brand name. They weren't backed by some big publisher. You know, it's an indie self-published title, and it's kicking butt. Like, no, no, other, no other ecosystem right now can do that, right? If, in, if you're in mobile yeah. and you don't have a million dollars of marketing budget or the biggest IPs in the world or both, you really can't get your AR mobile app known, right? Um, yeah. Uh, final question: Have you have you seen the VR presentation that you've been looking for pitched to you yet? And has that happened? And will it happen? The VR PowerPoint that you always talk about. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I've definitely had <laughs> presentations in VR. Like the Wave, they actually gave me a presentation in VR. Uh, that was pretty cute. Cool. Uh, and I've had other people pitch, but yeah, yeah. The idea that I, I, I used to think was the killer app in VR was to say, hey, can presentations be done better in VR? And can there be a tool mm -hmm. to make putting those presentations as easy as playing with Legos? I still have yet to see anyone really do that yet. Um, I would still love to You're see that. You're not the only one. I mean, I, I've seen some, some people doing some interesting work in parts of it. Like, uh, you know, a company we invest in, they're called Virtualytics, and they do data visualization in VR. So for data scientists to be able to view and manipulate mm -hmm. data in VR, that's pretty powerful and really amazing. Uh, there's a early stage startup called Flow, and they've been thinking a lot about, you know, what, what presentations in VR can feel like and look like and how you create that. But I haven't seen anyone really, really break it. I mean, you know, and of course, there's a lot of people in the architecture space kind of focusing on, hey, can we do walkthroughs and stuff? But, but none of them have, have shown me that, like, kind of general purpose, utilitarian, okay, this is how I want to present ideas, and this is how easy it is to create that presentation. But I think I, I'm still hopeful. Yeah. Um, but I do feel like there will be other more interesting applications. So actually, I will say too, one of the more interesting uses I've seen of, uh, and sorry, there's another self-promoting shameless plug, but Mindshow <laughs> is another application that we invested in. Mm. Um, but what's funny is, you know, it's an animation tool for VR, understanding, hey, if you're puppeting these characters, why don't you just record that? And instead of animating by drawing or moving figures, you just yeah. animate by acting. And one of the use cases that they found is, you know, people are using this for educational presentations at school. Mm. Yeah, to see a talking cat explain the history of Texas with some props that were created in Poly, and it's actually pretty compelling. So that is I, very cool. I, I feel like there are creative uses of the different tools, and yeah, and I feel like yeah, there's some great work I've seen in both Tilt Brush and Medium, especially now that uh, Medium has animation. Or sorry, uh, in uh, mm. Quill. 
now that Quill has animation tools and, and Anim VR, where people are creating presentations using those tools. Uh, and I think that's pretty awesome and pretty compelling. Yeah, I use it. I use it to do motion motion animations with Anim VR for like YouTube and videos. And we had an episode on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, so, these are fundamental changes in workflows that are happening. And I, I feel like you're right. Like, I think part of it is someone like those are the After Effects esque, and, and you can create an amazing presentation in After Effects, but there's, there's still a lot of overhead, and you still need a lot of you know. If if we can start showing hard. examples of what really good presentations look like in VR, then we can start working backwards and think, oh, what are the tools and the templates to make that yes. easier? But I think finding that first example of what are great presentations in VR and, and, and is it really effective? Yeah, you know, the, the one thing I do like a lot is, you know, super early, but the work on memory palaces in VR. Have you done a podcast on that yet? You think so? Not Man. yet. Uh, we've That's talked about it over, over the past two years, cool. but yeah. Uh, so McCunk, Wait, really? what is it? So yeah, so memory palaces, the idea of uh, the method of ah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. visual and spatial memory, essentially, and, and unlocking the potential of, uh, or the power of memory. Uh, so Macungs, M-A-C-U-N-X, they did a Kickstarter. They just released their product, and you can practice, and you can actually make memory palaces in VR. There's Ooh, research really? another university had done to show that people that make memory palaces on like desktop versus VR, that VR is more effective. Uh, which seems obvious, but it's always good to cool. test. But just just to show, okay, like yeah, going back to what is VR and AR? It's essentially a visual and spatial visual right? and showing how that can be effective. I think that's going to be very very interesting. So definitely check out Macan's. It's a cool project. I, I want to see more stuff in that. And I think if we can start unlocking again how VR can improve our daily lives, I think that's going to be very very powerful and impactful. I I, I think. If you ask me now, what I think one of, what would be the killer app that can make VR and AR mainstream? If someone can use memory palaces to improve someone's standardized testing scores, if it can improve your SAT scores by ten percent, I feel like every single household in America would have a VR rig. You want to hear this tip? Yeah. In, yeah. in college, uh, the university, there was like the, the research lab that I was working with. All the undergrads and I got together, and we were working in a hackathon, and we wanted to make something called Focus VR, where we we were all cognitive science students at the time and we were learning about environmental cues. And one of the things was that if you take the test in the same classroom that you were learning in, there's a lot of environmental cues that actually can, can be advantageous or like also like state based memory. Um, sure. So we were like, what if we photogrammetry scan the, the test taking environment and then you can also in VR at home, learn uh, the same environment, you know, the same material that you'll be taking the test in. Back then, I knew very little about photogrammetry, and it failed miserably in the two-day hackathon that we had. So we had to <laughs> change change the idea to something else. But it sounds very similar to what you're talking about in terms of standardized test taking environment and VR put together, so that you can um, you can standardize like both the learning and the test taking to be in the same environment and and really take advantage of like how spatial memory works. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. You should totally do that. You should have. I, I hear you writing just... the. They just, the they just had an EDU hackathon. They just had an EDU hackathon at Microsoft Reactor in San Francisco. You should have totally done right. the hackathon. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I feel like three years in or four years in now, like we're starting to actually get a better sense of what these killer apps can be. And again, it's not one app, but I think it's many different apps. But uh, you know, I think we, we are starting to see daily use applications of VR and AR. We are starting to see, you know, these applications that are getting people to come back and put on their headsets. You know, I, I think. Uh, 
we're in a very good position. And once we get the right hardware, I think we have some good steps towards that software. You know, the other killer app idea that I love for education, if they just took Google Earth, made it multiplayer, and let you and combine it with Tiltbrush, you could write notes. Like imagine mm. having a scavenger hunt game with a classroom that the teacher sets up beforehand. Mm. And the kids have to go out and you know, Da Vinci Code, National Treasure style, have to go around the world looking for clues. Right? Like that would be amazing. Yeah, and the good part is, you know, two of the students, you know, just take off the headsets and do whatever they want, while the whole of the rest of the classroom is exploring VR. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> Would love it as a student when I was in school. Okay, do you have, do you have a quick second just yeah, to sure. throw an idea? Yeah, yeah. Um, of I is augmented reality. Are we thinking about it wrong by really concentrating on the specs of the display rather than concentrating on the interactions that will be necessary to actually do things in AR? I think you're right, but 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 I still feel like both are important. Like yeah, you know, I, I I do feel like the you know the specs of the display, the more comfortable, you know, the bigger the FOV, like the more immersive it can be, the more general applications, like the more things it can do. But even at this small FOV, I, I think people have figured out okay, there are some really worthwhile things. But I, I do think the biggest thing that's holding AR back right now is that they don't have the right input, and that mm-hmm. you know like. When the Vive first came out and they showed that these have six degrees of freedom hand track, like they're like, okay, no, no, the keyboard, the control, like the gamepad, all that is not right. right. This is what the input right. for VR should be. And I feel like fundamentally VR and AR, it's about spatial computing. And I think we need that same type of input. And, I, you know, for all the weird things magically present, the fact that they have a six DOF controller, I think is actually a very good sign. And, you know, you need mm. a device that has precision. That, yeah, like that is dependable. Like I do worry about like some of these camera systems that are tracking your hands. No matter how good the camera system is, I can't imagine it being 100% reliable. Uh, mm. And if your mouse was 99.9% reliable, it would be the worst mouse in the world, right? Like you would be driven yes. insane. And so I feel like fundamentally... We all know it. Well, whenever the touchpad just basically has a problem, you're just going nuts, yeah. you go mad inside your brain. So we all can yeah. relate. So I feel like having tracked controllers and, and, and now learning and working with hands and two hands in particular, like it feels so right. And a lot of people, when, uh, and this is one thing, like, you know, when a lot of people are talking about, okay, I, at least I believe, I think a lot of people believe the future is an AR headset, MR headset that you wear, and that's going to be the ultimate platform of the future. Now, how do we get there? Sure, if you're maybe. a software developer, I don't think that figuring out mobile AR is going to get you to the right path to creating the best applications for that device. I think that focusing on VR and creating productivity apps in VR because it has a six degrees hand controller yes. is fundamentally more important right now. And so the best way to get to that future as a software developer is to focus on VR for now, not to try to figure out what's the killer apps or how do you become more productive in mobile AR. Because for me, yeah, one of the biggest problems with mobile AR is that interface where, yeah, sure, you can move mm-hmm. around, but if you're still interacting with the touchscreen and you only have like tap, mm-hmm. like that is just as bad as typing in VR, like typing to say, that's how I'm going to interact with the world in VR. Yeah, absolutely. That's why I have high hopes for Leap Motion, honestly, is because they've shown oh, to be yes. the highest fidelity of, of interaction with AR than any of the other companies. And I think... At the end of the day, when the iPhone came out, it wasn't the fact that the display was just nice. It was the fact that you could scroll in such a smooth fashion. And, and it's those simple interactions that can really make or break a product. And, and I, I'm, I'm very excited for, for really solid, fast interaction AR. Um, I do feel like you're yeah. right. So you're, you're, 
Oh, it's okay. You're, I was saying you're you're suggesting for people if you want to build an AR app, start building in VR today, and it'll be a better port later on rather than trying to start with a mobile AR app and move forward. And I definitely feel like another big lesson that we've learned from three years is you know how you interact with the digital world is just as if not more important than how you view the, the digital world. And so you know people are like, oh, well, VR is this, AR is that. Well, I, I feel like so much of the magic now is being able to grab something it up you know being able to yes. take something and you know stretch it resize, you know like that manipulating the world in a way that's natural and easy to understand like that is so powerful and yeah. I, I i hope more people really understand that and take advantage of that and there seems to be a pattern right i mean we started to program on paper for pc programs and we had like you know those empty holes that we need to do on the cartridge then we had like computer graphic interfaces with text that we programmed you know guis with with the GUIs, we programmed touch interfaces. With the touch interfaces, we programmed VR. With VR, we programmed IR. With, with IR, we program our brain interface, right? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Well, cool. Um, tip, we can hold you. I can hold you back and, and ask you more questions for the next bunch of hours, so, but we're not going to do that. Thank you again for joining us and for kind of giving us an overview of, of the health of the, uh, of the ecosystem and, and certain things that investors are looking for for as you're looking into your pitches. Um, how can people reach you and find you and, and find out more about the Venture Fund? Venture sure, Reality so Fund? definitely the easiest ways are to, you know, check us out on, on the web and we have a lot of resources like the industry landscapes that we published and we just recently updated the AR landscape. We'll be uh, updating the VR landscape soon. So the VRfund.com. You can also follow me on Twitter. Uh, and then of course, you know, you can email me. I'm tipatat, T-I-P-A-T-A-T at the VRfund.com. Uh, although my emails are a mess, so you know, if you don't hear back from me within like a couple of weeks, ping me again. It's not that I'm trying to avoid you; I'm just drowning in emails. And my suggestion even makes it worse, but still, somehow I'm yeah. able to manage. <laughs> yeah, it, it is definitely one of those things where I joke around. I'm like, if someone could build me a better email reader viewer oh, yeah. in VR that could manage all of the different, oh my like, God. like that would be that would awesome. Thousands of dollars. I would, yes, yes. If I could, uh, and even just the satisfaction of like reading and just like ripping it up and throwing spam away. Yeah. Oh, that awesome. But anyways. Oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I like it. Alright, thank you all for listening once more and thank you all for joining. Goodbye. Thank you for having me. Goodbye. Bye. 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 Bye.